You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. This week, we've got a heavy hitter in the commercial space in the room. It is Jim Segalas from Lease Equity. Jim, congratulations on 20 years with your business, mate. Thanks very much, Trent, and lovely to be here. I thought I'd get you in because of the niche space you work in. We've had a couple of other agents in the commercial space chat to us before, educating us about the commercial landscape, how it works, how you value property, those sort of things. But you're in quite an interesting niche that most of us would be able to relate to simply with our feet, and that is the retail space. Can you give us a little bit of a story as to where you started maybe 20 years ago and how that's progressed to now 20 years later with the business and what you guys are doing? Well, I can take it back beyond that. I started my career in retail, let's say. I was a graduate that joined Nestle, and part of the job within the Nestle organisation, which is obviously huge, was the graduate program meant, and the CEO of the world started off and had to work as a sales rep for a period. So in the graduate program, they said, there you go, go out and visit all these supermarkets. And, you know, we had Nescafe and quick milk and milo and all these things and I'm, and i've got to say i hated it i thought oh gee whiz you know i've done an economics degree and better than this and look it was the best thing that could have happened because i know where every shopping center was yeah. <laughs> i learned a lot about real estate from dealing with the shelves and then i graduated very quickly through that business to a key account management worked out pretty quickly it wasn't for me but it was a great granting that when i look back subsequently i went back and did some postgraduate studies was really keen to go into the financial markets but again realised after the event that the financial markets in Perth at that time were pretty shallow Mm. and I didn't want to leave Perth. So I joined what is now CB Richard Ellis but what was then Richard Ellis. Within four years from starting I started industrial, worked my way into retail because I understood it and I've got to say it was as simple as this trend. Retail must be easier because most of these operators have more than one site. So theoretically if I build a relationship with a tenant I can do more than one deal with them. So that was my simple logic. From there, four years later, I was um, the director of the department and four and a half years later, I was the uh, chairman of our national and APAC group. Worked there, loved it, got an opportunity to join Adrian Finney. It was a bit of a sideways move joining the Finney group, sideways in so far as it wasn't retail, it was all things asset and investment management. Really thoroughly enjoyed it. We were going through a process of pre-listing, it's probably the best way to describe it. We were really make, you know, putting all the rigours into place that you would probably do if you were going to list. Well, that didn't happen. What did happen was the business was sold to Mervac. That was a lot of fun, but I lost, in my view, a lot of autonomy. I had a lot of decision-making autonomy. So I stayed with the Mervac group, or Mervac Finney, as it was then known for a couple of years. And then decided and said to Adrian, look, I really think this is not for me. I've been asked by Deutsche Bank to start my own business and do the $120 million Whitford City redevelopment. Now, Deutsche Bank was formerly AXA. Deutsche Bank was the biggest financier of Westfield's project, which I'll come back to. So I said to Adrian, look, I want to stay with the group for your sake. But if it was at all possible, I'd like to go and do my own thing. Adrian, being the entrepreneurial spirit that he was, said, look, Jim, you go with my blessing, but I put everything on one page so he could see the financials of it and understand it. And he said, you go with my blessing. And by the way, I'll fold down the asset management department. So I started Lease Equity 20 years ago with 10 staff, a whole property management business, including Adrian as a foundation client, along with a whole lot of other people. And we started Whitford City. That was the beginning of what is Lease Equity today. We've done in the order of 
four to five projects every year for 20 years of varying sizes. And when I say projects, I define a project of a minimum of 10 shops, but up to 200 shops in a development, in, including the majors. So when you say you've done a project, uh, are we talking about leasing, selling, or are we talking about being involved in the development as well? All of the above, and I'll break it down. In the capacity of lease equity, what we do traditionally and what we still do today is we would help conceive budgets on who will you get as tenants, what will they pay, what will they turn over, what incentives are required, what are the base services they require, and with some clients we work that through to the cost side of the development feasibility and to get a full fees out, but in most cases all the income side and part of the cost side relating to the delivery of the shops. Certainly we have a lot of involvement with design, finishings, etc., and appropriate tenants. Is it tenant A or is it tenant B in a particular category? That's what we've done in the main, but what we've also done along the way is a number of developments in our own right. We are very careful not to conflict with our clients because that's not what we want to do. That's not our reason. It's not my why. But I have applied my own experiences into my own investments. With as a developer in your, in your own right? Yeah. yeah. I, I call myself an investor, but yeah, as a developer. At the end of the day, if you're identifying, acquiring, and then uh, transforming that site into an end product, you're a developer, Jim Sikalis. Yeah, potentially. I see myself as the trustee of our, of our family. So uh, the assets are all held in trust for our family, current being uh, the nuclear family and generationally. Mm. So to the extent that it makes sense, we have yet. Yeah. Could you rattle off a, a list of a, a few shopping centres, for example, or retail spaces that you've been involved in and, and how that worked? We'll start with the suburbs, uh, Whitford City, Carinup, Burragoon, Cobin Gateway, Belmont Forum, Mirabooka Square, Kingsway City, Thornley Square, Forest Lakes, Haynes Shopping Centre, Caversham Shopping Centre, Delkeith Village Shopping Centre, Shenton Shopping Centre, uh, Captain Sterling Shopping Centre. I can go on for yeah. another 10 minutes. So a lot of shopping centres from a management leasing development perspective. Yep. How has it worked? Well, it depends on the centre. We, we did the second of two stages before the last few stages of Coburn Gateway. As an example, we did the last extension of Up before the current one. We did two developments ago at Burragoon. Yep. Um, we did the full rework of Forest Lakes, which was a Coles and IGA, which is now a Coles, IGA, Aldi, McDonald's, 7-Eleven, etc. So varying roles with varying properties. We've taken some like Waterford Plaza from a Coles in a car park to a Coles and IGA and yep. 80 shops. Yep. So right across the spectrum. So a developer will come to you and say, look, Jim, own this asset or I'd like to buy this asset. I see upside in this. We'd like to expand on the footprint. We'd like to increase the amount of tenants. Can you find us those tenants? Is it as yeah, easy as and, that? And, and help us with, the, with conceiving what makes sense. I should add in the CBD, QV1, Brookfield Place, NX, 140, William, Queens Buildings, Wesley Buildings, Trinity Buildings, Plaza Arcade, David Jones, Allendale Square and St. Martin's Arcade. So we've been involved in a lot in the city and all of those projects, you know, one of the questions one could ask is, do you have conflicts in dealing with these? Well, we don't because we're very careful that we don't get direct competition with our clients. But also, most properties have a unique IP to them. Not all, and sometimes it is very similar. But with the unique IP, 
by location, dimension, uh, pitch to market. What we've become relatively expert at is being able to establish what makes sense. Matching the location with the tenant. And that comes to demographic analysis, that comes to gut feel, that comes to experience, that comes from having intimate understanding of what the tenant requirements are. We do a lot of talking, but we do a hell of a lot more listening. Basic question. How does a tenant pay lease? Is it a per square metre rate generally? And what would uh, what would a tenant be paying in a couple of these locations generally? So I'll take it to a very high level and then go to the specific. Retail is driven by turnover. Margin is assumed, although margin is part of the equation. Clearly, for example, supermarkets don't have the margin that, let's say, luxury fashion does. And therefore, their ability to pay rent is not necessarily as great on a per square metre basis. So there are typically bands of what we call occupancy cost. That is rent to turnover. What is that typically? Where does it sit? And there's a whole lot of factors that go into that, not the least of which is rent, but it's also some companies have a very high electricity. Uh, consumable electricity, yep. other, and that will be an ongoing issue going forward. Some have very high labour content, i.e., if you're making bespoke burgers or you're a high-end restaurant as opposed to machine making it. All of those factors come in. So tenants typically are paying rent on a per square metre basis. But the way you arrive at that is a whole lot of ways. And and, And at the most sophisticated part of the market, all those inputs go to work out what it would be. And one of those metrics is always typically supply demand. When you talk about some of the anchor tenants, I would assume that some of those guys would be naming their price or does it work the other way around? That's a really good question. And that comes to where you are in the cycle in the market, where a tenant is in the cycle in the market. And I say the cycle. So for example, you would think that a supermarket, Coles or Woolworths or even IGA, name their price. To a certain extent, when there's a competitive situation, that's a bit different. They also want to grow. So there is only, if we use an example, there is only one, let's say, Livingston marketplace. There's only one Canning Vale. If there's the best location within Canning Vale and there's a number of tenants that want to be there, there will probably only be one supermarket or maybe two in the area, as an example. Mm. So those sort of factors come into play as well. In its rawest, simplest form, it is supply and demand. But in a more complicated way, it's what will yield the best result, the right in, left out, all of those things. Is it zoned? Isn't it zoned? Has it got a level car park? All of these, is it a good design? All of these things will impact. And as I said before, what will derive the highest turnover and potentially also best margin? And also what is the skill set of the group delivering it? And I usually and often speak about Retail is about, when you're doing what I do, one plus one equaling three. So if you get the alchemy right, it's it's something quite different, like yellow and blue is green. Mm. That's something quite different to the constituent parts. I've noticed that in the last few years, there was very much nearly a wave of existing brownfields, shopping centres, all at the same time in some sort of arms race, I guess, to renovate, to provide a new lux- lifestyle uh, opportunity or a new reason for people to come back. You've seen Whitford just do it. You've seen Karen up do it. You've seen Borgoon try and get it up. Galleria had plans. Doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Um, I was at Karen up uh, a couple of days ago at, at midday. Uh, it was on a Thursday. Midday on a Thursday. The car park was full. I'm assuming they've been quite successful in doing that. 
Westfield have coined the phrase living centres and really speaks to what they are. But if you go back to the beginning, the village, what does the village have? You do most of the things that you need to do in a village and some of the things you want to do. So the pub's what you want to do. Mm. The cinema's what you want to do. You need to go to the doctor. You need to go to the supermarket and the like. So adding these components, food and beverage, precincts, etc., it's happening more and more. And the layering, uh, bearing in mind the history of, of a Beaufort Street, maybe 100 years, maybe 150 years. The history of a Karen Up shopping centre might be 60 years. Mm. So how do you create that, or, or where do you have the main street in Karen Up? So it's got to be the shopping centre. So then it's about how do you create a place people want to be mm. and want to dwell and it's also what's a day in the life of a shopping centre look like. And the interesting thing with these centres is how do you make the supermarket really convenient, which it needs to be, but yet, you know, you'd probably go through a few more hurdles to get to the cinema. Hurdles on purpose. Being, yeah, 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 on purpose or, you know, the IKEA rat wheel or whatever you want to say. And it's an interesting phenomenon what's happening at the super regional level, the Karen Ups and, and the like. But then you look at the sub-regional, which is, which is sort of the lost group where you've got the supermarket. What DD, an example, be? Let's say Riverton Forum Shopping Centre or Warwick Grove Shopping Centre. So it's not small and really convenient, but it's not big and really aspirational. Really They're in the middle. Yeah, yeah. So you've got your discount department store, you've got your supermarket. So a lot of the things that you need and some of the things you want, but a lot of the things that you, that you might want, like the fashion, is pretty middle market. And so there's no, not a lot of aspiration in those centres, so they're a little bit lost. Yeah, so they, not- they seem lost. You look at a Warwick Grove, it's got its Aldi, that's probably helped itself a little bit, but it's the sort of place you'd probably go to if you're there, but it's not a destination. And the challenge is if one goes through the history of shopping centre development in Western Australia, and we've got an interesting planning platform here. What used to happen, there was a hierarchy, regional district, neighbourhood. That was pretty much it. Mm. And once you're in one of those categories, there was a bit of a band around what you could build. And I'll come back to, to, to some other things. There's a band around what you could build. So let's say it was a neighbourhood, you'd probably get up to about 12,000 square metres, maybe a bit bigger, etc. And then there was drivers from some owners to, to get their centres bigger, because obviously they're productive, etc. And there was a period, the glory days, if you like, of the early 90s where shopping centres really came into their own. Mm. So if I go back a step though and say, then you've got the financial markets. And the financial markets got involved in shopping centre ownership, lend-lease. They're driving and driving to get returns for their investors. And we're in a category where there was a lot of headroom. So a lot of shopping centres like the sub-regionals were growing beyond what maybe they otherwise would have because the market was evolving, the internet wasn't a big competitor, shopping centres were really a day out in all different levels, and you had your Karen up, and you had your Burragoon, and you had your Carousel, and they're all much smaller than what they are now. So your Warwick Groves and your Rivertons and your Bull Creeks were really well patronised, and they had a level of fashion, etc., in them, that just kept you coming back. And, and then probably there was a different... Convenience as well. Yeah, well, yeah convenient. And less it was a, time parking, and less it was, time walking. And it was a different way people shop. Well, yeah. And what you then got is your, your, your segmentation of your, a lot of your groups. So a lot of your ownership groups, that we're going to own a segment or at least be preeminent. So it might have been Stockland in the neighbourhood and district, what was known as district, or your sub-regional centre. And a Westfield might have been your regional and your AMP might have been regional and district. But then... Over the journey, it got more and more sophisticated. But also what would happen is if you had a real big breadth of ownership, where was your expertise? 
And what I mean by that is a lot of the groups that got very heavily involved in ownership for a whole lot of reasons, what was their why? What was their core investment? Well, it probably was land subdivision mm. and they got into shopping centres or whatever. Well, your stocklands, these sort of people. Yeah, they did a wonderful job in that period. So what's happening today is that's being unpicked a little bit and that's where we're now starting to see residential and that come in. By the way, that's getting back to the village. Of course, and you see it in Karen up right now. I drove past it and you've got apartment buildings that are looking to be built there. You can see the same thing in Borragoon. Do you think we'll ever see another Galleria, another Karen up, another Borragoon get built in Western Australia or are they? Are we done with those days and it will now just be those Warwick Grove style, Banksia no, well, Grove style, well, Brabham well, shopping what, what you've got to look at in answering that question is where is the population growth mm. and where is there a land holding able to deliver on that? So the, the state government, through their planning, will zone, if you will, sites for... They'll set it aside. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but the, the challenge will be Perth is the second most sprawled city in the world after Los Angeles. So that's a real challenge to start with. It does not meet sustainability and other overlays that government is charged with trying to deliver. Putting that aside, the way shopping centres are built today because of what planning and other government ordinances require are quite different. So main streeting, etc. If you go to Ellenbrook, which is a satellite city in so many ways, there's a whole main street, both sides, they're building a city. And typically these things get built ahead of time. And infrastructure then leads to more population, etc. So which came first, the chicken or the egg? Long story short with all that, Trent, I don't think we'll see a lot of major regional shopping, super regional shopping centres built. What I do believe, though, is the likes of the Burragoons, the Ups, the Claremont Quarters to a lesser extent, the Morley Galleries, they're really in a city now. Mm. We will see the density and the verticality of those, and we will also see a change in how and what they are to the community, and we might see more community uses. I could really see offices... If you go to Chadston, for example, it's a city. There's a major office precinct. There's a bulky goods precinct. There's an auto precinct. There's a hotel, five or six star, etc. So that's a city. The challenge for the sub-regional sector, you know, DDS or discount department store anchored or double discount department store anchored with two or three supermarkets is what happens if any of that goes, goes dark? I could see them being distribution centres. Because you look at the industrial sector, industrial rents are growing at such a rate that what we're now seeing is they're almost approaching what a discount department store would pay. So carving off the rear of a discount department store and making it a distribution centre is probably not a bad option for some. Bearing in mind what I said earlier about Perth sprawl, bearing in mind the prices that people are having to pay for industrial land and construction. The other thing I will add is what's interesting about the Australian network of um, online is in America they've got an amazing distribution network. Yeah. Amazing. You or know, it's the, a patchwork of cities for starters. Yeah, the third-party organisations that do it are world's best. Australia's really sprawled. Perth's really sprawled. Perth's the remotest city in the world, another obvious fact. So what we're seeing a lot of is the hub and spoke model. So what happens is distribution, as it's been done for many, many, many years, comes into the state. They put it out to the stores and then the store distributes 
the product. It's happening with supermarkets, with click and collect and to the yeah, boot. Your office works. It's happening yeah. with office works. It's happening with spend less shoes. You order online, they dispatch it to hypothetically Kingsway Shopping Centre. You live in Darch, one of the staff members delivers it and they get a bonus for doing that. So why not then, if it's a DDS in one of these centres that's gone dark, would that not be used as a distribution centre? It might not be the most active thing, but it might be the most viable for what would otherwise be not as valuable space. How do you sell a shopping centre? Who are the buyers you've spoken about who is active at the moment? But I'm assuming, look, a number of shopping centres in Perth would be owned by large conglomerates, super funds. A number of them are still owned by generational families. How do you take it to market? What are they worth? Let's go back to basics and say every property has its primary function and those that invest in that property invest it for a number of reasons. But my point is every property is owned by a superannuation fund. It might be called something else. So if it's Trent's grandfather bought an industrial warehouse to put his bolt company in that he subsequently leased to a shoe repair company that... Trent now owns, he's inherited it, and he has it, and that delivers some income to do things. What's a superannuation by another name? Mm. So generally speaking, a lot of shopping centres are owned in the main by three groups. One, listed organisations that are formalised syndicates. Let's say Westfield. So if we look at Westfield, they own Whitford City. I think in the order of 25% of Westfield is owned by the Singapore government superannuation. So Westfield have got 75, Singapore super fund 25, but everyone that's bought into Westfield, shares or otherwise, so so there's there's one example. So they're a formalised syndicate, if you will, although they're a listed company that specialise in owning shopping centres and developing them and managing them. Then you've got your syndicators, and in the, and in the Perth vernacular, that might be... Uh, Prime West, which is now Centura, uh, which is listed, and Prime West had listed, but that's a syndicate of people. So what they've done is they've got a syndicate of people who have bought the centre via a vehicle created by Prime West, and then they've listed that vehicle. So there's a number of ownership pieces in all that, and a lot of that's super funds, private individuals, companies, and others. And then you've got private high net worth, if you will, that own centres, who have typically made their money to a lesser extent in property, more likely in another area, and they've moved it into property. Where we are today in November 2022 is a number of the listed companies, and a lot of the listed companies, I should add, the shopping centres might have formed part of an estate that they decided they could build a where for all to develop the shopping centre to help sell land, etc. But also there was a profitability in doing yeah, that. Diversify it wasn't the core. Well. Yep. Yeah. And the diversification piece is a good point, Trent, because a lot of those organisations want to staple the security. Mm. They want ongoing recurring income to balance out the highs and lows of residential land. It's not their core, or, but yeah, they may as well. But 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 it just balances out the highs and lows of a share price and other things and income. So You've got a lot of different things going on. Right now, and as I said, November 22, what we're seeing is a lot of redemptions on those companies. So they're net sellers generally. There isn't a lot of demand coming in. If you look in the Perth market, not a lot of demand coming from corporates. Let's just work through some of the properties that have sold. 
shopping centres. That'd be fantastic. Yeah, bearing in mind in 2020-21 full calendar years, let's say, there really hasn't been a market for mobility of we want to buy or sell something, let's go to the eastern states or elsewhere and offer it physically or let them come here and physically inspect it. So there was a backlog of potential sale properties and also the acceleration of everything that COVID created, good and bad, uh, and that might be internet and everything else, put people to the table. So what am I saying? We had a number of properties come onto the market, and I'll list them. We had Bull Creek. We had Forest Lakes. We had Hillary's, Mirabuka. We also had Southlands. What happened was they all went to market. Now, who bought them? Exclusive, apart from one, private owners. Private High net worth individuals looking for a return. In the main, in the main. Now, now to a certain extent, they're a bit of a syndicate in some. Or they were backed by overseas funds, whether it's Swiss funds or German funds, but local. Okay. The vendors almost exclusively were corporate. What sort of yields? The interesting thing that we've witnessed with all those properties, they sold on reasonably tight yields. And I'll come back to where interest rates were, are, and maybe will be. Mm. So the general thought in the market as well. You may be a price taker if you're selling something at the moment because interest rates are growing so rapidly. The market's illogically logical. And what I mean by that is before the interest rate increases started, we were talking for the longest time, the lowest interest rates we've not only seen in a generation ever, sub 2%, which the numbers we've always driven for what we do is 6% is about the number historically, give or take, as an interest rate. When we look to invest or do things, we rule of thumb say, regardless where it is, we need to be prepared to pay 6%. Now, obviously in this market and where we're heading, it could be more, but I'll come back to that. So all those properties I talked about were put on the market at a time when interest rates hadn't started to grow. The campaigns finalised as interest rates were growing. So people were buying them with a mindset a position, put them under contract in a very competitive environment. And then post all of that, um, when we look back, the yields are in the order of six, six and a quarter percent, which where interest rates are likely to go, and we would expect they're going to be at the four, four and a half, five, and maybe higher, depending on what your debt and your interest cover and a whole lot of other factors is. Um, it's not fantastic. It's not doesn't look fantastic. The real test in the market is as properties come on in 23, 24, what are people prepared to pay? But as I said earlier in this discussion, it's really about when and what and how. So it's contextual. So if some of the very premium neighborhood or sub-regional centers, and by premium I'm saying for the sophisticated purchaser is seen as very, very much able to tolerate changes in the market or flex or whatever it is. They will still, in my opinion, sell at relatively tight yields. Typically, typically, it's where they dominate their catchment and don't have likely competition or they're in relatively affluent areas and amongst other things, have good margin for the retailers, very high land content and developable potential in a vertical manner. I think a tight yield will still be around 6% going forward, but I think that we will start to see sevens and eights for anything that has got issues that are very difficult to unpick. You know, it's interesting, something like uh, a Bull Creek shopping centre, which was purchased by a local family, who are very sophisticated when it comes to 
their understanding of the market, construction, development and investment. I would suggest without knowing, so I don't want to speak out of school, but without knowing, I would suggest to you the yield they, they bought Bull Creek on is less relevant than the latent potential for, for apartment development. It's on a bus, it's on a train, it's a great piece of land. The reality of the land holding is it's probably more a holding income, for, part of it. future development pa- Part of it, I'll say, because yeah. I think it's a great shopping centre. So the fact that they may have paid X millions more or less is relevant to a point. But over a 10-year period, it's probably irrelevant. And it goes to what you think your 10-year numbers are because that's the sort of asset you would say. And my own reading of the market is we're going to see more what I call balance sheet buyers, families that can take a view and don't have to answer to shareholders. Mm. And they will have exponential returns or not, or not. But, you know, property's not unlike Trent shares. If you valued it every day, it would be a different value. Mm. It's just you don't. You just don't. You typically set your your finance for for three to five years or more. And unless you're listed, you don't report in. If you're listed in Singapore, you're you're reporting in quarterly, a bit more difficult. Who's going to buy shopping centres? Well, depending on what it is, you're going to have more and more people looking, depending on what it is. But they're probably going to be more private than corporate. I think we'll see money come in from Europe because the returns in Europe are very low and there's a lot of very sophisticated superannuant funds, insurance companies and the like. We'll get some out of Asia as well because those markets are relatively low return markets and if they can hedge their position with the exchange rate, you know, Perth or Australia is looking like a really attractive destination, particularly when, and you would have seen this a lot in, in advertisement, defensive assets. Defensive mix. Mm. What does that mean? Well, that means they're it's fighting a, against inflation, really. Yeah, but it also means is Coles or Woolworths going to go break? You've got to eat. So that's defensive. Medical center. The amount of money going through the NDIS, I think, will get to ten percent of GDP. So if you've got a medical center and a pharmacy and a physio and a bottle shop, that's defensive. That's defensive because you're not going to be subjected. Because what COVID did was it put a laser beam on property. And investors could see what's an essential service. Pharmacy stayed open. Liquor store stayed open. Medical stayed open. Defensive. How much is a shopping centre worth for the mums and dads out there who just want to get an idea? What would a Thornley Square or a Bull Creek be worth? Uh, Bull Creek would be 80, uh, in the order of $80 million. Uh, Thornley would be in the order of $25, 26000000 million. In that order. One of my favourite books I've ever read was Kerry Stokes' uh, biography spoke about how he started in his early 20s selling land in Morley in the 60s. And by his mid-20s, and I'm talking 25, he was developing Dinella Plaza, Thornley Square, Bunbury Plaza. It's nearly unfathomable to me that in today's day and age, someone in their mid-20s could develop a shopping center, pull together all the anchor tenants, have the connections, find the money, get the banks to back them in. Do you think it could ever happen again? Look, it's a very different time. What I would say to you is the world is now way more sophisticated. I remember one of the guys that worked with us, he was brought to Australia to work for Jones Langwooten, not LaSalle, Jones Langwooten. And he'd come from the UK and, you know, these new fandangled shopping centre thingies. And his job was to do carousel. 
on behalf with he- on behalf of Hammersons, who they were, which was a UK listed organisation back in the day. He would tell me, and this guy was a English guy, spoke with absolute eloquence and precision, and he would say, Jim, what we would do is the typical letter we would send a tenant would be, dear Trent, I had occasion to visit the very prestigious high street of the Hay Street Mall, and whereupon I found that you had a store. That store seemed to flourish. We have conceived an idea to extend our shopping centre, which we think you would do fabulously well in. We encourage you to meet us on the day of June 30th, 2000, whatever, at 9am for a cup of tea and because you'd take the journey out there, of course, right? Mm, You'd drive out there, carousel. That was like going to Melbourne. And do visit upon us and we will show you a one-dimensional plan. And that's how they lease shops, right? Now, go to Kerry's day or Mr. Stokes' day. I suspect someone in Coles would say, Look, my job is to find sites. I'm the state manager, not a property guy. I'm the state manager. We want one in this place called Dianella because we think there are people there because we drove around and we see blocks of land are selling. And I'm sure Mr. Stokes would have said, I'll find you that land. Look, there's a lot of houses selling there and la, 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 la. Forget about demographic analysis, probity, all that. And they would have committed to it. And so it's a very different time. We see elements of that elements of that with fast growing companies so in the early days of let's say a guzman y gomez or in the early days of a nido daycare where they're relatively unsophisticated in their in what they're doing because they're making it up as they go along they're just shotgunning yeah they've just got a great business model they're really entrepreneurial and as they go through if you deal with any of those sort of organizations day one uh, you know, one of the thematics that I teach the younger guys is when the when these companies are in startup, they need to get to critical mass because they're at, they're at capital raising stages, etc. So what they do at the beginning versus what they do when they get to a critical mass is quite different. Mm. So that would be a bit akin to what you're talking about in a lot of the startups, and it depends who sits around the table. And what's changed as well is the incentives that are involved in attracting tenants is eye-wateringly extraordinary. Mm. So the office market, even at the very peak of the property boom, had incentives in it for tenants, and it still does today. So you need to have really deep pockets to attract major tenants or even less major tenants in office buildings. Retail's not dissimilar. What a shopping centre costs you is only the very beginning. What it costs you to attract and retain tenants is quite another matter. You've mentioned a few times the future development capacity of Brownfield's shopping centres. Do you think that is the future for development when it comes to asset owning in this space or identifying opportunities surrounding retail is is more specifically the infill development opportunities sitting on the land itself? Look, the challenge with shopping centres everywhere is keeping them relevant and there are a number of lenses you need to look through there is the very obvious what does the community need and if it needs supermarket or whatever but you've also you know some some shopping centers there'll be a residential play others will have a hotel play others will need to to have part of them demolished others will simply need to be extended because there is a market to extend them a lot of what we're going to see out there will be what I call defensive development. That is keeping it relevant. So the really big challenge for property developers 
nay, investors, those that own shopping centres will be, it's really straightforward and, and, and you've got a development background so you understand this very well and I'm, and I'm sure some of the listeners would as well. You get the factors of production and you say the income's this, therefore we get a return of whatever it might be, let's say 8%, that's the hurdle rate or the internal rate returns 12%, it makes sense. There's a lot of the assets out there that you would say we've got a book value of whatever it is, let's say 10 million, let's say 100 million. If we don't develop, we think it will continue to decline or we don't refurbish, it'll continue to decline. So we need to spend 10 million to hold the 100 million value. Mm. No one gets up in the morning, Trent, and says, I've got to paint my house. I'm desperate to paint my house and spend money. To keep but, it worth what it's worth. But, but, yeah. but to keep it relevant. So that's going to creep into the market and there's going to be a period as there is with most markets where there's going to be confusion. Some will jump off the aeroplane when the motor doesn't work. Some will pray. Some will just say whatever happens, happens. And others will think their way through. And some will say, I'm going to read the instructions. Similarly, we'll see that for a period when there's a bit of flux. But the defensive stuff may not necessarily mean that you might go backwards and then go forward. It's really difficult to convince anybody to spend money just to hold their position. People tend to want to kick a winning score Mm. Not many coaches coach to protecting a losing score. Very true. You've mentioned the fact that in addition to lease equity as a trading business, you spend a lot of time and obviously enjoy the investing development part of of the game. And it's it's funny, I've spoken to a number of CEOs in this state now in, in property and it's interesting how most of them are actually not involved in property development or have very defensive property investment portfolios, if any. Uh, it's cool to see you obviously enjoy playing the game as much as being a part of the game as well. I assume lease equity keeps you in the game whilst you can also play the game on the outside without giving away any of your trade secrets. Where are you putting your time and effort right now when in playing the game? First of all, if I can't drive past it, I don't buy it. Love it. I absolutely love that. If you do not have an intimate understanding of the asset you're investing in, you are punting. That's number one. Number two, six kilometre radius to the GPO, prime corner sites. Almost every property we've bought meets that criteria. Almost. So you wouldn't go, I'm just doing this in my head, Joondana sort of sits that your radius of what you're As getting. I said, there's exceptions to every That's about rule. six Ks from the city. Yeah, every rule. But yeah. where if I had to go back, Corner sites, right in, left out, left in, right out. That just means umpteen options. That means typically we're going to get latent, and, and this speaks to a bit of my conservatism. I know there's a huge latent land value and it probably will grow because if you're within 6Ks of the CBD, it is likely it'll be rezoned more densely. And the holding income, it might be reasonably great at, in terms of relative value, but in the end, it, it may be relatively insignificant to the holding income. That's been a thematic, web, or those two things have been thematics, but if you said to me, would I buy a shopping centre in Bull Creek? Yes, I would, no doubt. But if I go back and look at what we've traditionally bought, one unpacks one psychology as well and go, where do I feel comfortable so I know what my comfort levels are on investment value, debt levels, etc. So I know myself very well. 
there's a number to which I won't go below. Don't worry about the higher end. Mm. I won't go to it because because there's so it's not much, worth the time. It's not worth the time. Yeah, it's maybe seductive to look at buying a million or one and a half million dollar property, but it's not. You know that would potentially risk going into a much bigger property of which the equity that we use for that one and a half mm. would be a bit restricting. Is it resi or is it commercial or is it industrial that you focus on yourself? We have owned industrial, we, we own resi, we own commercial office and we own retail. By far and away, the bulk is retail. Or, what you know. Yeah, and there's a bit of mixed juice in there. We have got resi, but we were involved in a couple of resi developments which we develop to own we don't develop to sell so when we have done resi we've owned and we've always partnered with now i I know property fairly well but trent for example if if there was a deal somewhere and you said you're the expert so i would the other thing that we've worked i should say the other thematic for us or other filter for us is we go with the best so if it's a town planner if it's a lawyer if it's now Within reason, because sometimes you don't need the best lawyer. Sometimes you're hitting a fly with a hammer. You know, I don't know the residential market in Balcatta, but if you're a residential developer and I've got some land there and we can do something, I would back you and I'd be in the back seat, so to speak. Mm. We've bought industrial, um, but we've been very comfortable understanding the metrics of it. Um, But I assume your competitive advantage here is understanding your key colleagues, which are the tenants, understanding where they would fit and then going and acquiring sites within 6Ks of the city that they would do very well in and matching them up with it. Yeah, definitely. And look, I've got sites that have been vacant for three years. I'm also of the view if the properties are in great locations, which I think they all are, and I think that they deserve... I don't keep them vacant, don't get me wrong, but I'm also not going to lease something... You know, We've got a property in a country town. We think we've got the best corner in that country. It's a big country town, so it's it's actually called a city, but it's a country town. Three and a half years of vacancies. Mm. Difficult market, did a lot of things. We're now fully leased. ASX listed top three, two of our tenants are ASX, so they're banks, and we've got a couple of government tenants. We had to do some defensive work to the buildings, etc. I wasn't so worried about how long it had been vacant, even though ostensibly I'm expert in those areas. Mm. But I also take some other advice that I give myself, which is, well, I don't have to pull the trigger on it unless it's right. Unless so the, you have cash flow issues. Yeah, look, and I'll get to that too. So one of my gymisms, if you like, also is no such thing as a bad deal, just too much debt. Yeah. So we don't also go into something that we can't afford and we don't go into something on the basis of if we do this, it'll be worth more so we can afford it. We go in and say, that's what we paid for it. We've got to be able to afford based on the metrics of what we've bought. Mm. And the fresh air or the growth we can put into it, that's the bonus that we absolutely want to do and absolutely think we can do, but we don't rely on it for our funding. So it's a very conservative lens we look through. Having said that, someone else might see it as really risky because it's not an area they've got IP in. Well, I think the theme for me today with regards to your investment strategy is not particularly that it's always been the most successful for you straight up or that your strategy works for everyone else but that your strategy relates to your expertise and stick with what you know don't try and be everything to everyone be an expert in what you do and take your own advice you know a lot of people look around a lot and try and be somewhere or doing something that is is not in their space and it's really it's, it's quite refreshing to see 
you taking your own advice, investing your own expertise, and then having a long-term view on that. You sometimes got to ask yourself the question twice. But but the other thing I, I would add with all of this is a lot of consultants and a lot of groups are really good at giving advice. You've got to be able to take it. Mm. And I said 25 minutes ago, I do a lot of talking in my job. I do a lot of listening also and a lot of active listening, asking probing questions about stuff. And, and like I said to you, I always look for the best partners and partners could be the guy who cleans the bins or it could be the architect and it could be the town planner because if it's not an area that we're expert in why the hell are we going on about it Mm -hmm. many 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 times we would get an architect and we would say here's all the bits of the jigsaw that we see that we want and they'll come back and reimagine that and I say reimagine it because in my mind it was you know, A, X and Y, and they'll come back and it'll be A, B and C and it'll be, oh my God, that is perfect. I'm not going to draw it. And it's a really simple thing. I'm going to say, this is how I think it looks. But that expertise that you're buying is really, really important. If you look at something like uh, Central Park, it's, 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 it's an office building, obviously. If you look at the lobby, I'm in awe of what Perrin and their partners, Fraser's, have done with Woods Bagot because they've turned that into a hotel lobby, somewhere where people want to meet. They feel comfortable. First of all, the owner had to have the vision, but then Woods Bagot had to execute that vision really subtly and beautifully. Now, they've repositioned that asset to the premium asset. I would argue that now all the other lobbies in the city are now saying, we need to do that. Mm. And that's, you know, and they put this beautiful coffee shop, which we did with them in there. But QV1 and, and Brookfield Place, they're all probably looking at that now going, that's what great looks like. Mm. But it took the amalgam of a whole group to come up with it in their constituent parts. And, and for my part, my one thing, if I had to say, what did I bring to that project? Absolute focus on an operator that could execute what they wanted which wasn't directly aligned with how the client saw it. But my truth was, this is the sort of operator you need. And it took me twice as long to convince the owner. We did it. They are trading amazingly. Mm. And the operator that I put in there said no three times. So not only did the owner not necessarily want to do it with this particular operator, but the operator wasn't that amored with the building either. But that's the great thing that Woods Baggett and the owner put together. It was just amazing. And for that property, it was about showing people what amazing looked like. I certainly would never have conceived what they collaborated on. I think I added to it or lease equity added to it. But that's just a great example of one plus one equaling three and getting the best people around the table and everyone adding their piece. And, and off we went. Jim Segalis. Lease Equity, it's been a fantastic 50 minutes having a chat with you today. Thank you very much. Super insightful. Uh, I look forward to chatting you again sometime in the future about how this uh, retail space is going. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!